Please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to Romans 12. Romans 12, we were in a series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans prior to Advent, and we've had uh, different messages, Advent messages, and uh, those uh, dates subsequent to Advent, as we did last Sunday morning together. But today we'll begin uh, in the latter part of the book, in the second half of Romans chapter 12, verse 9, where we left off at verse 8 earlier. Now, some people think that this portion of the book of Romans is really the lighter portion. That is, that the thrust of the book is chapters 1 through 11, where Paul outlines all this marvelous Christian theology. And beginning with chapter 12, and really the middle of chapter 12, we find the personal and practical applications of all that Paul has taught. Well, this is not incidental. This is not something that is not as important as chapters 1 through 11. Because remember that all Christian theology should lead to methodology. That is, what we believe should have an impact on how we live. And if it doesn't, then we're not practicing authentic Christianity. That's why the Lord told us through James to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And so beginning with chapter 12, as Paul taught us in verses 1 and 2, that we're to give our bodies as a living sacrifice, that we're to devote ourselves to the Lord and live for him. And the last time we were together in Romans... Paul went on to talk about spiritual gifts and that we should be practicing them. And so now, in verse 9, through the end of the chapter, he gives us some very basic, very ordinary commands that should have an extraordinary impact upon our lives, the lives of other believers around us, and the lives of pagans. There's really... Uh, no rhyme or reason to Paul's words in terms of classifying them here or putting them in categories, he seems to be uh, operating with concentric circles, beginning with verse uh, 9 and verse 21, and uh, we see that at the end he talks about evil. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And then in the end, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are two bookends for the entire passage beginning in verse 9 and ending in verse 21. Now, in the middle, he gives commands. And I believe if you take the entire passage, and even if you divide it up, Paul is basically addressing how we are to love. The impact of love upon our lives, how we are to love one another as believers, and how we are to demonstrate love to a pagan watching world. You'll notice this in verse 1. We have a personal sphere. Excuse me, verse 9. The personal sphere, I believe, is verse 9 and verses 21. And then the communal sphere, secondly, is verses 10 through 13 and verses 15 and 16. And then thirdly and finally, we have the global sphere. And you'll see that in verses 14 and then verses 17 through 20. So along with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart 
might be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, forgive the preacher, for his sins are many. We wish to see Jesus and him only. We pray that you would speak to our hearts of eternal things as we look into your word on this Lord's Day morning. So bless us now, Lord, as we engage in this study. We'll give you all the praise and glory and honor for what you will do in our lives. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you notice in verse 9, uh, I believe in verse 21, again, we have the personal sphere. That's where Paul begins. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. You know, hypocrisy is a pretense of having a virtuous character, moral or religious beliefs or principles that one does not really possess. It's a fake. It's a phony. It's a pretense. And in contrast to this, the genuine or agape love that we find in the Bible offered to us in Jesus Christ demonstrates itself by a renewed heart and mind. You see, the Lord's love for us is pure, it's unmerited, and it's holistic. We're saved first and foremost because God has sovereignly set his affections on us in advance. And we respond to that overwhelming love, that agape love from God, by embracing the gospel. The gospel says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that we might not perish but have everlasting life if we believe in him. And subsequently we're called to live lives marked by genuine love. You see, a genuine love for the Lord shows itself in a genuine love for ourselves. Why is that? Because loving others presupposes a genuine love for yourself. Because God commands us to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, this is not some morbid preoccupation with yourself. That's not what I'm talking about. A genuine peace and security in God's love for you. That's what I'm talking about. You see, the world says you ought to love yourself. But what they mean by that is you ought to look to your own needs first. You ought to look out for number one, essentially. And when things go wrong, you are able to excuse yourself. You're able to release yourself. That's the world's kind of love for self. What I'm talking about is when you truly believe that Christ died for you, and that he lives inside of you by his spirit. Now you're able to forgive yourself. Now I've heard that before. I I believe God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Well, that sounds really uh, nice and holy. The problem is, if you think that way, then you're being holier than God. If the Lord can forgive you, and the Lord can make you into a new creature, who are you to stand in the way to say, I cannot forgive myself? Or I had this target fixation on something that I've done in the past or something that was done to me and I will not let go of it. That's not being a new creature. And that is not loving yourself in a genuine manner. You see, you'll never be able to love others in a genuine manner until you love God and you love yourself. And you will not love God and yourself until you properly understand the gospel. 
And I don't just mean with an intellectual knowledge. I mean to experience it in your own heart and life. That you know that Christ loves you. Because love is the most important thing. If we Christians don't have love, we don't genuinely love the Lord and we don't genuinely love ourselves first in a manner that says, I am secure in Christ. I am forgiven in Christ. And the things that were done to me, the ugly things by other people, those things have been washed away by his blood. And though I still struggle in this world of difficulty and tears, I know that God loves me. And I want to radiate that love to all those around me. Jesus made it clear that love is the supreme mark of his disciples. John 12, 13, 35, all men will know that you're my disciples by your love. The Apostle Paul outlines the fact that love is more important to a Christian than any other spiritual gift that he or she may have. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he says, Now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The very first fruit of the Spirit is love. You know, Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and so on. Well, the first is love because it is a priority. And the ability to love is a sign of salvation, according to St. John. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And so Paul is telling us in this passage that authentic Christian love must be and begin without hypocrisy. In other words, it's got to be genuine. It's got to be genuine in your own heart, God's love for you and your love for yourself, and then it's got to be genuine as we love others. And sometimes it's just not. You know, some people say, well, I love you in the Lord. Yeah. And that's another way to say I can't stand you. you know? <laughs> that is hypocritical love. And there's something wrong with that. There's something rotten in the well that needs to be dealt with. Because hypocrisy is the antithesis of agape love. And the two cannot coexist. Now, Judas Iscariot is the consummate hypocrite in Scripture. He faked devotion to Jesus to achieve his own selfish purposes. And his betrayal of Jesus was a kiss. That kiss was the supreme example of his hypocrisy. His hypocrisy was unmasked and his self-centeredness was made evident when he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's a sad thing. There's got to be genuine love in the body of Christ. It begins and ends with love. And I think too often the church lacks love because individual hearts are struggling at that point. They're struggling to truly believe that God loves me, that Christ died in my place, and that all the sins that I've committed against others and all their sins against me have been removed. And Christ has paid the penalty. I pray that we would appreciate that this morning, that we would genuinely negotiate the gospel, and that we would look at our lives and say, I am not going to go forward with a sense of guilt. I am not going to go forward 
replaying the tapes of somebody who has been abusive to me. A wife, a parent, a child that has broken my heart. Because when you put all those things aside and you fix your eyes on Jesus, you realize I have been truly loved and I can be secure in who I am because I'm in Christ Jesus. And when you love yourself like that and you love the Lord Jesus like that, now you are in a position to do the other things that Paul mentions and that is love your brothers and sisters in Christ and even love the world. Let's look at that quickly. We're told here the personal sphere, love the Lord, love yourself. Let love be and begin without hypocrisy. The next is the communal sphere. and Paul gives various commands that are simple here. Look at verse 10. Uh, do fellow believers know that you enjoy their fellowship? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Do your fellow brothers and sisters believe that you truly enjoy fellowship with them. Look at verse 10b and 11. He says, showing honor to one another, not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Question again, do you, do I show honor to fellow believers by my diligence and fervency to help, to get around them, by treating them as I treat Christ. You know, that is absolutely true. The way we treat one another is the way we treat Jesus Christ. Paul made that clear in his epistle to the Corinthians, I believe. He said, how you treat others. When you sin against others, you sin against Christ. Because we together collectively make up the visible body of Christ on earth. And so it naturally stands that we have to love each other with diligence and fervency. Listen to the words of Peter, 1 Peter 1.22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that lovely? You know, when the Bible talks about fervency and love, I don't think it's trying to outline certain things that we have to do to demonstrate our love. I think it's just simply showing what is the inward uh, posture, the inward attitude that is coming out. Do people really believe that you love them? Do they believe that? Look at verse 12. Do we encourage other believers by demonstrating uh, these three important qualities. Rejoicing in hope. You know, the great objective of our lives is to honor the Lord and to rejoice in His kindness, especially in His free offer of eternal salvation in Christ. But if we have a complaining, grumbling spirit, that does nothing to encourage others. Persevering in tribulation. Do you demonstrate a quiet, secure confidence when things don't go your way or according to plan? Do I? I had a rough week this past week, and on Wednesday morning, or excuse me, Thursday morning, after Wednesday night, Diane's battery died while she was here at choir practice. And so I had a committee meeting that morning, and I was racing with Diane in the car to get here to the church. I figured I could switch out the battery and uh, make it to the committee meeting where I was supposed to give the devotional. 
And uh, while I was trying to get that battery out, it just didn't go to plan. It got hard. It was a struggle. And I found myself angry and cursing that battery and upset and loud and obnoxious. I was not in a spiritual mood, to say the least. And I thought to myself, when I got up and led the devotional about feeling secure in Christ's love for us, and looking at the law of God and the fact that we've been forgiven, that we should not neglect such a great salvation. I was really, really convicted. And I was shown just how quickly we can get out of the spirit and into the flesh, and we're not persevering in tribulation. And I think about Christians who have gone to their own death because of their testimony for Christ, and I fall so short at that point, and I get discouraged. But then I remember that I need to go to the Lord in prayer and not try to manufacture this persevering spirit, but pray earnestly that he would give me the grace, that he would demonstrate it in me because he lives in me and he lives in you. When you lose your temper, when you get out of sorts, you realize I need to go back to the Lord. That's why it says rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Do you demonstrate a wholehearted dependency upon the Lord? Or do you demonstrate an arrogant confidence in yourself? You'll notice it is devotion to prayer that serves as the foundation for rejoicing in hope and persevering in tribulation. I can't manufacture these things. They are foreign to me. But when I go and I pray and I seek God's face and I ask for his mercy to forgive me and his grace to help me, now I am supernaturally equipped to rejoice in hope, to persevere during tribulation. What do you demonstrate? Is it a trust in the Lord? A quiet confidence in Christ in you, the hope of glory? Or do you try and try and try to manufacture those qualities that the Bible calls for, which can only be produced by Christ in us? Let me challenge you at that point. Go to the Lord in prayer, much prayer. And when you do pray, ask him to give you the grace to live these kind of lives that we would be dead to self and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 13a. Paul says, practicing, uh, excuse me, contributing to the needs of the saints. That's very important. Do you look for needs amongst the body of Christ? You know, so often we Christians say, call me if you need me. <laughs> or if you need anything, give me a call, you know. Instead of being more proactive, when somebody is sick, you take a meal to their home. You don't ask for permission to do it. You don't ask, do you need this? You just act. When you see somebody in the body of Christ who looks down, do you take the time to notice? Do you take the time to inquire? I'm sure even in a group like this, there are hurting hearts here this morning. And many times we demonstrate that just by our lack of zeal and our pain inside. We need to be sensitive to one another. 1 John 3.16 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Be proactive. Be aggressive in looking for opportunities to help and serve others. 13b, do you practice hospitality? Practicing hospitality. Uh, that's almost like a foreign term amongst a lot of uh, those who are introverts, you know. 
Introverts like to be alone. We have a number of introverts in our church, including me. But the Bible makes it clear we've got to spend time with each other. And a beautiful way to do that is have people in your home. Have them in your home. Inviting fellow Christians into your home is a marvelous way to express loving transparency in the body of Christ. You know, biblical hospitality is not contingent upon you making the perfect meal or setting the table in a perfect manner or even having a cleanest house in the congregation. No, love is expressed simply by having people in your home. Think about that. When you're invited to somebody's home, it is a moment of transparency. They're opening the doors, and the moment you walk in, you feel warm and accepted by this invitation. I know I do. When I go to somebody's home, I could care less what we're having for dinner. And I could care less how the table's set. You could throw me a cheeseburger from McDonald's, and I would be perfectly content and happy because you opened your home to me. We need to do that to one another. Opening our home is opening our lives and allowing people to come in and to see us in an intimate setting. Well, it goes on to say in verse 16, there's a general warning against pride and arrogance and Conceit. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. Now, Paul is not calling for uniformity in thought, but for thinking Christians to move toward unity. This presupposes a teachable spirit. You know, so often we are engaged in uh, making our point clear. And so often our attitude is uh, knowing that uh, we're always right, you know, but uh, when you don't have a teachable spirit, you walk around that way, that I'm always right and that you can and should uh, listen to me. And what Paul is saying is recognize you're not always right and that you can and should learn from others. Listen to their viewpoint. Be courteous. It doesn't mean that you have to have the same exact thought because we're going to disagree. But it does mean to listen to others and crawl into their shoes. See if you can understand why they're saying what they're saying. It goes a long way in building relationships. He says, do not be haughty in mind. Some people fancy themselves as intellectually superior to all others, and therefore they're never wrong. And they think that anyone who disagrees with them is a fool. We have to watch that sort of thing in the body of Christ. We must be careful not to discount someone else. That's why he says, associate with the lowly. Why? Well, it's not just for their sakes. It's for ours. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He associated with the lowly. Do you seek to listen to and understand fellow believers? Or do you think exclusively about how you will respond when they're finished talking? And that sort of thing happens all the time. We're so ready to give a response that we're not even listening to the person who is talking to us? All we're thinking about is what we're going to say. When you disagree, do you leave the table? Do you shun other people? That, that cannot happen in the body of Christ. We're going to disagree. We're going to rub against each other. And if we just pick up our toys and walk away from the table at that point, what good is that? That's what the world does. The world says, I'm going to cut you off. I want nothing else to do with you. And all that is is protecting self. That is loving yourself in a worldly manner. Instead of saying, wait a minute, Christ lives in me. I have the supernatural ability to love those who have not loved me properly and to deal with those who mistreat me. 
Are your feelings easily hurt by other believers? We need to think about these things and chew on these things. Well, Paul tells us in the personal sphere, there must be love, a true, authentic love for the Lord because of his authentic agape love for you and a true love for yourself, a biblical love. And he goes on to the communal sphere, how do we treat one another? And then finally, you'll notice a global sphere in verses 14 and 17 through 20. What do I mean by that? Paul is shifting gears by offering instruction on how Christians should conduct themselves in the world. Uh, That is to say, around unbelievers. Look at verse 14. Uh, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. His first command is to bless those who persecute you and to avoid cursing others when they curse you. And this harkens back to our Lord's instruction on the Sermon on the Mount, a portion of which we read this morning in Matthew 5, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. He goes on in verse 43 and 44. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, every time I read these words, I think, I can't possibly do that. I can't do it. You see, the Jesus' commands presuppose a supernatural existence, a supernatural life. The world is used to revenge and payback, and they're shocked when they encounter someone who does not practice this kind of behavior. Our long-suffering and patience should extend beyond the walls of the church, the community of faith, into the world. And this is seen in all sorts of ways. You know, when you deal with a telemarketer, how do you deal with a telemarketer? (laughs) I wonder if they could hang up the phone and say, I've truly been talking to a Christian. You know, most of the time, probably not. We get upset. We get mad because somebody's chewing up our time, trying to sell us something we don't need. It's right in the, the, the pit of that moment that you need to say, wait a minute, I belong to Christ. And I need to share him even in my attitude. Diane and I called the billing office the other day. We keep getting this bill. You ever get a bill over and over again? And you call the insurance company and they say it's their fault. And you call the doctor and they say it's the insurance company's fault. And you don't get anywhere. And you keep calling and calling and calling. And finally you get somebody who uh, can pay attention to what you're saying. And you explain it to them. But they don't seem to get it. They just keep saying the same thing over and over again. How do you act at that point? Once again, I have shame. (laughs) You get upset. I want you to fix this. Why is this so difficult to understand? Instead of saying, look, I know this may be challenging, and help me, let me agonize with you through this, and let's help to get it right. Road rage. You know, when I'm on the road, how do I respond when somebody cuts me off, when somebody curses me or gives a hand gesture? What do I do? Well, the way the world responds is tit for tat. But the Christian is not to be that way. And this requires a supernatural life. That means that when I read the Sermon on the Mount in those portions, I'm not to sit back and say, how can I bring this about? 
How can I manufacture this kind of behavior? There must be some mechanism. There must be some formula for me to put together to act like this. If Jesus commands me to act like this, no, the way you do this is to say, I cannot do this. I need the Spirit of God inside of me. And I need to look to eternal things so keenly that I know when I respond, I'm being impacted by the very presence of Christ in my life. It's supernatural. He says, respect what is right in the eyes of all men. There will be times when your views, according to truth, align with others who are not believers. If I meet somebody who is of the religion of Islam, and we strike up a conversation, and we find out we agree on the portion of, of or the issue of abortion, well, I'm not going to try to convince them to become a Christian at that point. I'm going to see common ground. And I'm going to compliment him for his views. All I'm going to do later is show him that I have a better reason to have the same opinion on abortion than he does. And hopefully he will be one to faith. But it requires a supernatural reaction. And we don't have that without full dependency on Christ. Are you repelled by nonbelievers or do you seek common ground with them? Verse 18, strive for peace whenever possible. Pagans are often at war with others around them and at war with themselves. If you open uh, any kind of news app, if you pay attention to what's going on in the world, if you pay attention to what's going on in politics, people are at war. They're angry with each other. And a lot of times they're angry with themselves. They don't like themselves. And a Christian is to have an impact. He or she is to strive for peace whenever possible. Look at verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then the big one. Don't practice revenge against your enemy. Paul quotes Proverbs 21, or 25, 21 and 22 to reinforce his plea not to avenge. That is the quotation there. And the use of burning coals is most likely derived from an Egyptian ritual in which a person it is said, could purge his or her own sin by carrying on his or her head a dish containing burning charcoal. You know, it's the thing, the very thing that Paul spoke against in another place. He said, uh, you know, some people practice severe treatment of the body as if they could gain forgiveness, as if they could uh, gain an element of spiritual relief. And what Paul is saying here, look, when you act like this in a supernatural manner, with Christ inside of you, fully dependent upon him, in some cases, you may put a heap of burning coals on somebody's head. And what he means by that is, you may bring about shame in their own life and corresponding repentance because they are convicted by what they see in you. I think that's what happened to Saul of Tarsus. You know, when God first confronted Saul, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the pricks? And I think he's referring to the stoning of Stephen. As he watched that young man get stoned to death, and that young man saying, Lord, do not hold this against them. That's supernatural. And I think that probably was eating at Paul's conscience. He was kicking against all the pieces of evidence which demonstrated the living Christ, and he couldn't kick any longer. He had to acknowledge that something was going on. That's supernatural. 
Stephen's life was supernatural in that sense. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, put to death around the middle of the second century. They say when he came, when they came, the Romans to pick him up because he would not burn incense and say, Caesar is Lord. When they came, he allowed his captors and invited them to sit down at the table so he could serve them a meal before they took him away. That's supernatural. It's dependency upon Christ. When I read the book of Hebrews 10.34, the writer of Hebrews says, You showed sympathy to prisoners and you joyfully accepted the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Now, how many of us would truly enjoy the seizure of our property? You see, it's supernatural. The only way that I could see that is to see the unseen kingdom so clearly and realize that I am a citizen of another country so clearly that I would rejoice in whatever the Lord brought my way. All of this demands a supernatural element. We cannot do this on our own. But if Christ is living inside of us and we are submitting to his spirit and we are in prayer for one another and prayer that God would use us for his glory, then and only then does it become possible. But it all begins with that personal relationship to Jesus Christ. Do you know that he loves you? Do you love him? He laid down his life for you and paid the penalty for your sins. He offers forgiveness and eternal life to all those who embrace him by faith. I pray that all of us would and that we would walk with him as supernatural beings propelled by the Spirit in order to live lives with these high demands. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. We thank you for the life and death of the Lord Jesus. And as the Apostle Paul says, now I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So, Lord, I pray that you would bring about a true love for you and a love for ourselves, a biblical love, a love for one another, and a love for a lost and a dying and perishing world that they might see Christ in us. Lord, bring it about in every one of us by your Spirit, according to the Gospel. And we'll give you the praise and glory for all that you will do. We make our prayer in Jesus' name.